to the Save or Die podcast, a podcast about classic Dungeons and Dragons. Hi folks, Dan Glenn here, the Save or Die podcast, and we today are interviewing Mr. Jeffrey McKinney, who is the author of Carcosa, a weird science fantasy horror setting, and the Isle of the Unknown. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much for having. Yeah, thank you. I'm. Lo- I got some advanced copies of this, and I'm, I've got to say these books look gorgeous. Oh uh, yeah. What Lament- What uh, Jim Raggi and Lamentations did with it? It's like, wow, these are these look better than my D and D books. <laughs> yeah, when um, I got my author's copies in uh, January, mm-hmm. and I was just blown away by them. I knew they were going to look nice, but I, I think they both look just. Uh, I mean, I, I think they could hold up against any book by any publisher for, you know, the, the role-playing field. And uh, of the two, Isle of the Unknown, I think, is uh, even better than Carcosa, j- just, you know, in, in terms of its uh, visual appeal. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, it really stands out. I was at North Texas RPG Con, and they had a few copies here, and I was like, wow, that just, like, catches your eye. Uh, the Carcosa book was like almost library binding. Oh, yes, yes. It's so, it's so deluxe. Yeah, it looks like it could survive a nuclear bomb or something. <laughs> <laughs> the, the roaches will be role-playing Carcos. <laughs> well, I, I hope so, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's more, more residuals for you, yeah. Um, so how did this all come about, this, uh, you know, Carcosa? And, you know, I, I kind of followed it a little bit on the boards. You were developing it. But where did the idea come from? Well, in a sense, Carcosa has been with me since I started role-playing back in 1980 when I was 10 years old. Um, I, I uh, was in a group of, um, you know, we, we ranged in age from about 9 to 13. Oh, okay. And uh, we started with the Holmes-edited uh, basic D&D set. And uh, just about three months after that, I picked up a copy of the Advanced D&D Deities and Demigods book. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And my, yeah. Ten, yeah, my, my ten-year-old mind was blown away. I assume this is like... First, yeah, I was going to say, this is probably first or second printing when they saw the Cthulhu stuff in there. Yes, yes. I bought it when it was brand new. See, I, I'd, I'd, in fact, I'd gone to the store that day with $12 in my pocket to buy the player's handbook. Uh-huh. And... Um, you know, a week or two before that, deities and demigods didn't exist. And so when I showed up and there it was, I was like, oh, player's handbook, forget it. I picked up the deities and demigods. And uh, you know, looking through there, seeing Errol Otis's awesome Cthuloid illustrations, and uh, a couple of things that really just uh, impressed me. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I was 10 years old at the time. You look through these gods, and every one but one, chaotic evil, chaotic evil, chaotic evil. Then you look in the back. What kind of sacrifice do they require? Human, 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 every yeah. single one. And so ever since then, um, you know, human sacrifice and Cthuloid entities and, you know, weird summoning spells have been a part of our D&D games. But it was in 2004 that I really sat down and said, hey, wouldn't it be neat to have a D&D campaign where this sort of thing wasn't just one ingredient along with, you know, orcs and elves and everything else, but rather this was the main attraction. And so then I just, you know, started from that uh, 
idea. And over the course of years, kept winnowing away. It's like, well, this doesn't belong, so I'd throw it out of the game. This doesn't belong, throw it out of the game. Well, this would be cool, so I'd add it into the game. And uh, over the years, people are, you know, I'd talk about it on Dragon's Foot and other places. They'd say, why don't you publish this? And I was like, no, no, I'm not going to publish it. I'm just telling you about my game. But they kept saying this, kept saying it. And then finally one day, it just clicked in my mind how I could... Uh, you know, make it work as a as a published book, and uh, I published it out of my house um, in October of 2008. I just printed it on my own printer, did everything right here in my house. Drove uh-huh. over to the, you know, every time I get uh-huh. get a um, get an order, I'd print another copy and drive down to the post office. And right. after a while, sales slowed down, and then. Uh, my printer broke, and I said, "Well, uh, it's not worth buying a new printer because my, you know, the sales are slow at this point." Right. And not too long afterwards, James Raji says, "Hey, why don't you let me publish it?" And, and we did. The rest is history. Yeah. Wow. And so was Isle of the Unknown and kind of an offshoot of this? Not at all. Part part of the campaign? Okay. No, no. I, Isle of the Unknown is a completely different campaign. Well, one of the things I want to do as a role-playing author, and, you know, God alone knows how many books I'll ever publish. Maybe just two. I don't know. Um, but one th- one of my goals is to never just publish a rehash of something I'd already written. You know, the last thing I wanted to do with Isle of the Unknown was make, oh, look, Carcosa, take two. You know what I mean? Right. Um, I'd already done Carcosa. There's Carcosa, and all we have to do is look at George Lucas and the prequels and the special editions. Like, sometimes it's best just to leave well enough alone. Don't revisit it. Don't, quote-unquote, improve it. Don't try to change it. Just leave it. There it is. That's Carcosa. This is Carcosa. And that'll always be Carcosa. There's never going to be any you know, serious changes to it. Isle of the Unknown is completely different uh, style and type of campaign. With, with Isle of the Unknown, yeah, the horror element basically isn't really there. The sci-fi element right. really isn't there. It's more of a standard D&D campaign. The single biggest difference is that the players, what they encounter in the Isle of the Unknown, none of it is going to be anything they've ever seen before. Yeah. Like, like in my own games, when the the players would explore the Isle of the Unknown. We just used the standard D&D rules, you know, okay. magic users and clerics and all you know, all that stuff. Um, but they never encountered an orc. They never encountered an elf or a red dragon or a plus one sword. And what, whereas the players might have, say, a magic missile spell, all of the spellcasters that they would encounter would have unique powers that they'd never encountered before. And the big, one of the big reasons I really wanted to do this is I kind of wanted to recapture what it felt like to play D&D when you'd never played it before. Uh, see, you know, when we first played D&D, you, you know, you'd see, a, say, a blue dragon. Mm-hmm. And then when it would breathe lightning, I'm like, whoa, it breathes lightning. I had no idea it would do that. Okay. Or, or most of all, the troll. You know, you'd see a troll and you start hacking it to bits and its head is bouncing along the ground trying to bite you. What the devil? How do we deal with this? And so and you'd eventually learn, oh, you know, fire and acid. So the second time and the third time and the 30th and the 100th time you'd encounter a troll, 
it wasn't quite the same thing as that first time. And the same with spells and, and magic ma- magic spells and magic items. Uh, so with Isle of the Unknown, I'm trying to make it seem like it's all new, like you've never played before. That's great. That's great. Because um, they're, they're kind of similar in their setup. That's why I asked you. Um, because most of the area of Carcosa is a hex crawl. Ah, uh, I see. Yes. And so Isle came off as the same way, except each one had a unique monster with it. I mean, I'm not saying the other one didn't, but that's the way it came off. In fact, when I first got these books, I read through them, and I was kind of like, eh. Because, you know, just it just to me it just seemed like a hodgepodge in my head. But then I reread it and reread it, and I clicked in my mind what you were getting at. Yeah, well, an inspiration for both of them, maybe not necessarily in terms of content, uh-huh. but in terms of um, you know, the structure, uh-huh. is the old Judges Guilds. Yes. Yeah, you know. Yes. I, because I, I've got like a, I've got a whole collection of Judges Guilds, and I look back at a couple of those, I go, oh, yeah, okay, I got it. Exactly. Exactly. These are supposed to basically be latter-day Judges Guild, Wilderlands-style supplements for the game. Uh, you know, my really my only problem with the Judges Guild Wilderlands is that there's not enough of it. Yeah. Um, these huge maps, and I think they had like 1,600 hexes per map, and not all of the hexes had something in it. And so you'd go to hex, say, 0712. You'd look on 0712. Nothing. Oh, I wish there was something there. So it was important to me in both of my products that for every land-based hex, of course, Isle of the Unknown, there's some pure oceanic hexes. I just ignored those. But for every land-based hex, that there's at least one point of interest that that, so when the referee is just kind of doing a seat-of-the-pants game and they're crawling around the the map, no matter where they go, he has at least something he can run with and and develop or go off in in any any direction he wants. Um, Uh, And it shows you how much the game has changed because a lot of people were going, Everywhere I step, I'm going to get killed. There's something there. And I looked and I go, no, look, it's like so many square miles. That's just one little feature. Exactly. I mean, yeah, I think I think most people and gamers included, we really don't have an accurate idea of what distance is. Mm-hmm. I grew up in the Colorado mountains, and I would hike. And, and the area I would hike is maybe... 10 square miles and that always seemed vast to me I never felt like oh I'm in this cramped little area and I would even get lost sometimes kind of you know in, in that 10 square miles well think about it in both of these books there are 80 something square miles in each and every hex right so even just a single hex is a vast tract of wilderness. And so the chance of just randomly encountering any of these points of interest would be not even 1%. Okay. <laughs> you know, I mean, you could, like, like, for example, in Isle of the Unknown with some of those statues, you could probably, in real life, explore an area of wilderness, 86 square miles in extent, and never find the statue that someone had put in there. Right. So, so really, they're just there in case the DM needs something. Yeah, yeah, and and I loved it. And it was it, once I, like I said, once I got it, 
I, I loved it because it's like he's saying, it's here. Put something else in there if you want. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no way, there is absolutely no way anyone could exhaustively detail, uh, you know, the, the maps in these two uh, in these two books. It would right. be an encyclopedia set. Yeah, it would be huge. Yeah, it, just impossibly so, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, i got to ask this question. Sure. Have you had any trouble with Arkham House or Chaosium over the Chithulu stuff in Carcosa? No, I have never received any communications or even even the merest hint of communication okay. from, from them. No, and, you, know, you know, when you look at, uh, it's kind of murky, the copyright status of Lovecraft stuff. Is, oh, yeah. It's, it's murky. But I, th I think arguably the finest living Lovecraft, Lovecraft scholar is S.T. Joshi. And he has written an essay uh, addressing the, this copyright status of Lovecraft stories. And he comes to the conclusion that basically all of them, maybe with the exception of half a dozen or so, but basically all of Lovecraft stories are in the public domain. So that means yeah. anybody can do anything they want with them. And, and I, notice, I know uh, notice Lovecraftian stuff all over the place. In fact, you can go on the Internet, a number of sites, and get the full text of yeah. all of Lovecraft stories for free. So. Oh, yeah. I think that de facto, if nothing else, nobody owns these characters or concepts or stories. They're just for all of us. Okay, cool, cool. Because I, I really hate to see you get a C&D, because this is just too good of stuff. Yeah, yeah well, it's been four years, you know, since the initial publication. Then with uh, James Raggi's, it's been half a year. I would, I would think that if there was going to be something, it would have happened a long time ago. True, true, true. Now, the mechanics... The way you work hit points and damage. Was that a development out of your campaign? <laughs> yes. In fact, what it was a development out of was a giant box of dice I bought. There was this, uh -huh. there was a giant box of old-fashioned dice. You know, they were <clears throat> opaque, solid colored, not, the, oh, not yeah. the fancy stuff. The type of thing that I, I would have seen at the game store back when I started in 1980. Yeah. Dragon dice, yes. Yeah, and it, it was, it was uh, actually 512 dice. It was like for 20 bucks or something crazy. I said, oh, gee, just for the nostalgia value, I'm going to buy this. So I bought the box of dice. And so I just looked at them and stuff. Well, that's kind of fun. But, gee, it's kind of sad just to have a box of dice sitting there. I've got to get these in on the game somehow. And so that, that's, that, that was the genesis of how I came to the you know, rolling handfuls of dice with uh, Carcosa. And I have to say, that's one of the, the most controversial parts of the book. You know, some people just say, oh, the whole thing's broken and unplayable because of it. It's like, well, it, it, it's really just a fun thing. You know, if yeah. you like to roll a lot of dice, use that section of the book. Right. Nothing in the book, in the rest of the book, which is what, like 300 or close yeah. to 300 pages, nothing in the rest of the book depends upon, uh, you know, the dice ideas that are included right. in the front of the book, which is, you know, maybe four or five pages. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just, just ignore it if you want. Okay, yeah, that, that's what I said. I mean, you know, save or die, I'm always going, it's modular, folks, it's modular. Use what you want. Oh, and yeah, both of these books, totally modular. There is no one thing in either of these books that you have to use. Any and everything can be easily taken out, and the other parts will still work just fine. Oh, yeah, and, uh, you know, yeah, like what you said. <laughs> It's just that some people look at some people look at that and go, "God, this is going to take a long time to resolve an encounter." Well, I'm sure it would at first, 
but if you got used to it, I mean, there's people who play Role Master who can do an encounter in like five minutes with all the charts and everything. So yeah, once you get, once you, you know, you use it, you know what's going on. It should be all right. Yeah, yeah. In, in my own experience, it takes no more or less time. It's it's just the same as playing standard D and D. Like I said, you, you just get used to it, and uh, and then instead of you know grabbing a single die, you just regularly grab one of each sort of die and roll them all. Yeah, drop them on there, see what happens. Look at the chart. Right. Yeah. Okay. And okay, going on. I'm not. I'm going to ignore the part about ascending armor class. Grr. Uh, yeah, you know, in, in the original publication of Carcosa, I did not use Ascending Armor class. It was uh, it was explicitly written as a as a supplement for the 1974 D&D. Okay. And simply because James Raggi is publishing it, and you know his his uh, game is you know, the Lamentations of the Flame Princess, and it uses Ascending Armor class. We just tweaked it and uh, changed those numbers and a, a couple of other you know little cosmetic things, but it's basically the exact okay. same book and. and you know, I, I always play um, using the 1974 D&D rules. Right. And, uh, you know, to me, w whether you're playing using that or any any form of D&D that was published before 2000 or any of the retro clones, it, right. it, if you have any experience at all, it, it's all the same game. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking of using at least parts of it for, for some of my stuff, and I use uh, Rule Cyclopedia, you know, Metzer. Oh, and yeah. I'm sure it'll have no problem fitting right in there. None. No, not at all. No. Okay. What? Here, here's a here's kind of a related question. What? Well, I'll ask you anyway. What RPG rule set do you think this fit best? I, again, I don't. Th I don't think there's any one, honestly. Well, I, I'll tell you. You know, my the reason my favorite is the 1974 D&D &D rules is uh -huh. it's so slender and it's so vague. It, it's it just it's. Uh, it's just so easy. It's second nature for me to use, and uh, we we almost never have to look up anything in a book except a you know a hit table or or a saving throw table. So I just say you know whichever form of uh, 20th century D and D you play or whatever uh, retro clone thereof, uh -huh. whichever one you're most comfortable with, that's the one that's going to work best with. Okay, okay. I'm sure Liz would love to hear that. That and if you put kobolds back in the game. Uh. <laughs> I think probably the single biggest difference between Carcosa and Standard D&D &D is one of the weaknesses to me of Standard D&D &D is how long it can take before the players get to the good stuff. Right. I mean, they're, you know, like those ninth level spells. I mean, if, if you look at what Gary Gygax used to say, and if you were to play... D&D, uh, every single week, with the exact same character, and this character never got killed, and he never got level drained, it would take close to a decade before your first level magic user, close to ten years before your, real time, before your first level magic user could finally cast a ninth level spell. Wow. Now, now imagine if you're an adult like us, and instead of playing uh, every week, maybe you're only playing every month. Wow, okay, now we're talking 40 years. Are we even going to be alive? I mean, literally, <laughs> not our characters, us. We might yes. be dead. We might be dead before we can play. <laughs> okay, so so that that's that's something to consider about you know mm -hmm. uh, standard D and D with Carcosa. There is nothing that a first level character can't potentially use. 
all of the sorceress rituals. There's 96 in the book. Every single one, if the character goes and acquires the material components and acquires the knowledge to perform that ritual, uh-huh. he can do it. There's rituals not in the book. Say a ritual to summon Cthulhu. A first-level character can do it. There's, there's really uh, powerful uh, high-tech items. A first-level character could find those things. Uh-huh. Uh, the, the psionics. First-level oh, yeah. characters have science. I've, so, so I've got to tell you, by the way, sorry to interrupt, but I've got to tell you that's the best psionic system I've ever seen. Oh, thank you. Short, short to the point, boom. I loved it. It, yeah, to me, it's the only D&D psionic system that I've seen that I can actually use. The rest, I, I mean, I can kind of understand them when I'm sitting there reading, say, the player's handbook for advanced D&D, but try to actually get me to use it in a game, and suddenly it doesn't make sense to me. I just can't do it. And I'm you know, flipping in the book, trying to you know, scratch in my head. So I really wanted a psionic system that anybody, easy, without any effort at all, could use. Yeah. I mean, that's the way it should be. I mean, to me, that's, in your world, that's the substitute for a magic system. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. You may have psionics, you may not. You may have something at the day. You may have something different the next day, you know. Cool. I can live with that. And I hope the players can, too. So, (laughs) Now, the artwork in here, I really liked in both books. Um, Especially Carcosa, because I'm a sucker for like black and white line art mm-hmm. and some of the stuff it's just so intricate and beautiful um, did you have any input on who the artists were or did you pick any out or did Jim do that or yeah um, I was kind of surprised you know, I, I've, I've read about you know world class authors I don't know um, like Stephen Jay Gould mm-hmm. I mean my goodness he's on bestsellers lists He'd sell more copies of a book in one day than I'll sell in my entire life of all my titles put together. And he had no control over anything in his books except the words. Wow. Yeah, and, that, and that's typical. An artist, I'm sorry, an author typically never has any say or input over what the cover's going to look like, what the cover's going to say. Sometimes he doesn't even have any input over the title. And yeah. so when James contacted me and, and wanted to publish Carcosa and I'll with the unknown, I thought I was going to be done when I sent him the manuscripts, basically. I thought I was going to send him the manuscripts, wait a while, and then get the completed books in the mail. But no, it was the exact opposite. He was so awesome to work with. On everything, on every aspect of these books, he gave me options. He, it, was, it was very important to him that the books reflected my vision. And I, I really appreciate that. So he and I exchanged hundreds of emails going back and forth. We had artist tryouts for Ooh. each of these. Yeah, for each of these books. And um, when, when when there was and James and I through through going back and forth with emails, we would usually come to the same conclusion eventually on any given thing. But occasionally we would just have a, a difference of, of opinion about something. And I always got the final say on it. It was really cool. Cool. That is that is great. Because it, even in Isle of the Unknown, I like the color work in there, too. I mean, every single animal is like, wow. Yes. Um, see, that, see, that was my idea. Mm-hmm. The, the, um, there's two monsters in the Monster Manual, Advanced uh-huh. D&D Monster Manual, that almost no one has ever heard of or used. And those right. are the Slithering Tracker and the Masher. I remember on Dragon's Foot, somebody was talking about the Masher. You know, and I was like, the Masher? 
I've never even heard of that. I've never even heard of it. I got to go back and look at my books. But yeah, it's crazy. And do you know why? Why? It's because it's because they don't have illustrations. We just glide right over it. That's true. Yeah, it's crazy. So so I had this idea. I woke up in the early morning one morning, as you know, when we were, you know, in process, you know, getting these books put together, and it just occurred to me. It's like, wow. All of these monsters in Isle of the Unknown are unique. No one's ever seen one like it before. And I don't want them to end up like the poor old masher and the slithering tracker. <laughs> so I emailed James. I said, hey, is there any way possible we could put a picture of each and every monster in? And he emailed back. He says, no way. That was way too expensive. I said, yeah, I thought so. But it was a dream. I had to try. And later that day, he says, wait a minute. We might be able to make this work. And uh, an artist that does a lot of art for James and his other projects, uh, Amos Stearns, he's the one that does that did all of the monster art for Isle of the Unknown. And because there's like 130 of them or something like that. He did all of them? Every single one. So, so we, we basically got a bulk rate. <laughs> See, he, he charged less per monster than if we had just asked him to do five or six, because we asked him to do every single one. And then, then James took that one notch up, because he says, you know, Jeff, you make a lot of use of color in this book. we got to get him to do full color. I'm like, well, all right. So that's what happened with those monsters. I'm starting to think that, where does he live, Iceland or... <laughs> Finland. 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 I'm starting to think he gets really good printer's rates in Finland <laughs> for the stuff he puts out. Um, I'm looking I'm looking at Isle of the Unknown right now, and it says uh, the artists are Amos Stearns, Jason Rainville, and Cynthia Shepard. Jason Rainville, uh, and it was, it was James Raggi's idea. I have 13 mages. Well, there, there's, many, there's several dozen mages on the island, but 13 of them are astrologically themed. And James had the idea, hey, let's have a full-page illustration of each of the astrologically-themed mages. Oh, yes. Yeah. And, and so um, I really worked a lot with um, uh, the artist on that one because uh, I, I had to make sure that uh, Jason, Jason Rainville, that he understood that hey, you know, when, when you're illustrating these, never just put in any old tree or any old foliage or any old flower. Every single thing you see, like, for example, right now I'm looking at the, uh, the Leo uh -huh. magic user. You know, every single thing, for example, in that illustration is tied in somehow with the sign of Leo. Yeah, uh, every single astrological sign has stones and colors and trees and flowers and herbs and smells associated with it. So I said, make sure everything about that illustration is Leo, and then yeah. the same for all the rest. And I think you just hit it out on the park. But, yeah, I, I'm, I'm looking at the plates now, and they're absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the uh, creatures themselves aren't bad, but these things, these things are like, oh, TS, TSR wished they could have plates like this in the day. Oh yeah, you're exactly right. And then, and then with Cynthia Shepard, you know, she she uh, has also worked with James Raggi in the past. For example, she did the uh, illustration, the cover illustration of his game of the Flame Princess fighting right. that Type right. Five demon. Yep. Yeah, and so James, yeah, and so so James had the idea. I, I think it's like Hex Twelve something. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, twelve oh nine. He says, I want Hex 1209 to be the cover. 
And so he got Cynthia Shepard to do that. And, uh, and she just, it, I mean, it's just beautiful. It, it, for my money, it's the single most beautiful uh, role-playing cover I've ever seen. And the only change I had to ask her to make to it, uh, she originally had the statue with cracks on it, like it was like an old, ruined, weathered statue. Uh-huh. And, but, th- you know, that was my fault. I, I, had, I was, you know, sometimes you get too close to something, and I, I just thought every- yeah, I just thought the whole world knew that, hey, all these magical statues aren't weathered. <laughs> and so when she came back with the first, you know, first go at it, I was like, oh, just get rid of those cracks, and it's perfect otherwise. Uh-huh. Well, it's, yeah, it's like I said, that thing really stands out. I mean, on a shelf. Put this in a game store, and it'll move. Man, oh, man. So they've done, they've just, just gorgeous, gorgeous with this thing. Okay, now, um, you've got, Instead of like dwarves and elves and things like that, you've got colored men, color as I put it, color coded men. Yes. And um, did that come out of playtesting? I mean, did that come out of your campaign also, or is that? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. None, none of this. Well, basically, none of this stuff. No major aspect of either of these books was not used somehow in play. And um, there's just something that just really works for me with different colored skin. I don't know why. And, uh, yeah, and, 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 you know, it goes back at least as far as Edgar Rice Burroughs with the the green men and the yellow men and the red men of Mars, etc. And, um, in fact, there there wasn't enough colors, so I had to, I had to get David Lindsay to help me, who wrote uh, A Voyage to Arcturus. Uh And he has three imaginary colors in there, Dome, Old Fire, and Jail. So I also had those be colors on Carcosa. So you can play a, you can play a human being with a skin color that literally no one can see or imagine. I know. I, I was thinking, like, Jim was probably thankful that you didn't have any color in the inside of the books. How the <laughs> heck are we going to do an old fire man? That's right. What do you do with that? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I like that. I like that aspect of it. Um, just, I mean, I I don't miss the elves and the dwarves and the hobbits. I really don't. With, with this kind of thing. I mean, it's just, it's Lovecraft with a layer of, like, Howard. Yes. And yes. Things. Um, in fact, as, you know, like I saw on the on the, the board, somebody was doing the Carcosa and rack, Wacky Races. Yes, I saw that. Which I thought was, I thought was brilliant. And I, it, that's, what the, that's when I went back to the book and it started getting me thinking, what else can I do? If I don't agree with this, like, worldview, or I don't want this worldview, what can I do to, like, you know, change it and make it my own? All right. Exactly. And, I'm, and I'm thinking of, like, you know, I want to, I like, play down the Eldritch and push up the Gonzo. Mm-hmm. So it's like old Gamma World. Um, at one point, I was thought, thinking about doing like a He-Man or Thundar the Barbarian with the technology and the magic and all this other stuff. Well, I'm right there with you because when I first started my Carcosa campaign, you know what rules I used? Which ones? If you remember in the first edition Dungeons... Uh, I'm sorry, first edition Advanced D&D Dungeon Master's Guide... Yeah, there, there's a section in there called Men and or no, what's it called? Mutants and Magic, I believe. I remember that. Yeah, or it was about blending the Gamma World and the Advanced D and D rules. That's exactly what I used when I started Carcosa. There's wow. a there's a huge influence of Gamma World on Carcosa. Right, 
a lot of our some of our listeners and some of our hosts are going to think I'm going to be eating a little crow here because I'm the most verbal opponent of modern technology aside from black powder in D&D. I hate it. I don't like Expedition of the Barrier Peaks or anything like that. Do not put lasers in. Don't mix sci-fi with my fantasy. But this, I could just like jump in with both feet. Um, just because everything just, it works. It works for me. Well, I think part of the reason for that, and and in some ways I can agree with you, I, I don't want Gandalf having a, a laser pistol, you know. Um, and Carcosa really goes to a pre-J.R.R. Tolkien layer of fantasy. It goes back to the 1920s weird tales with Lovecraft and oh, yeah. Howard and Clark Ashton Smith. And back then, they didn't have a rigid demarcation between fantasy, horror, or uh, sci-fi. And so it's really... It's really its own thing. It's not like I took two different things with Carcosa, like, like the Lord of the Rings plus, you know, um, you know something from uh, Arthur C. Clarke and mixed them. No, instead I went, I went back nearly a hundred years, okay. and 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 used that as as my inspiration. And I, that's why I think it works without feeling discordant. And it's just like, well, this this is weird. Why? why this, yeah. this is this just doesn't work. Yeah, with D&D, you put sci-fi in there. How many times are you going to go, oh, there's this stick that shoots a beam out? After about the third <laughs> time, to go, yeah, we get it. It's a laser. All right, fine. You know, that kind of thing. But right. this, this is like such a hodgepodge. It's such a glorious hodgepodge. I love it. It's like Coward and Lovecraft and all this stuff. And I said, I'm going to take all this stuff and get a little Mad Max in there because for some reason I think there's a lot of desert on Carcosa. Yes, it, Carcosa in my mind is very rocky, very barren. Yeah, for the know, most part. And, and take the whole thing and put it beyond Thunderdome. Yeah, um, it just it it fires the imagination, just my imagination anyway. Um, and so, what's next for you? You know, I really don't have anything on the table in terms of something I'm writing for publication. Uh-huh. Um, but the, one of the reason I wrote one of the reasons that I wrote both of these two books is that there's just not enough of the stuff that I really like available out there. There's so much stuff that's that's good, um, but just just me personally, I, I have so much experience with with standard D and D. Is I if I want to play a game of standard D and I don't need anybody to help me out. You know, I. I I, I have all that stuff memorized. I can do it in my sleep. So I don't need, a, for example, a module with, hey, let's, let's go raid you know, a humanoid lair. You know, there's goblins. And, okay. I can do that my, myself. And so I, I wish that people would write more stuff that's all unique. And so uh, what, what I'm soliciting, and I already have one manuscript that I've approved, I, I hope for it to be published next month, I'm going to be publishing a, a line of, uh, self-publishing, a line of uh, short adventures called called Psychedelic Fantasies. And my rules, so to speak, for the for the authors is, is that, hey, if, if you can find it in a published book, I don't want to see it in this, <laughs> in your manuscript. So whether it's a magic item or a monster or a magic spell, if it's been published, 
it doesn't belong in this. It needs to be all new stuff. Right. And um, they're, they're going to be real, real cheap. They're going to be, in this sense, they're going to be like the opposite of these two books. You know, these two books are just gloriously, you know, beautiful. Um, my books are going to go, these psychedelic fantasies are going to take an opposite approach. And they're going to be totally bare bones. They're not going to have any illustrations except for the map. And possibly something on the cover. I don't know yet. Okay. And so there's going to be text, and they're going to be like five bucks. And, oh, try, um, during the D20 year, there was uh, something called Pulp Dungeons. It sounds like kind of like that. Yeah, and I, I don't know if this is the same thing, but I remember in the D20 era, there was there was a, uh, these modules that that were like folded the other way. They, they, they're they're eleven. 11 inches tall, but only like four and a half inches wide. Yes, Alderac put those out. There you go. I had That's a couple right. of them. Yes, they're going to be like that in format. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and, and so, so, and you know, each one's going to be about eight, 9,000 words, and so each one's going to be something that you can just use, you know, basically for, for a single one-shot or maybe two, you know what I mean? And And so it's going to be real inexpensive, and because of their format, I'm able to Mail them very inexpensively. I'll be able to mail one anywhere uh -huh. in the United States for right. you know, forty-five cents. I can do an international mailing for two and a half bucks. Nice. So, yeah. So, so I I, just, I hope that people can you know use these as as something that, that's real, real cheap, real easy. But at the same time, it's like, hey, it's not just more goblins and orcs and plus three swords. This is really different, wacky, crazy stuff. Yeah, and if nothing, yeah, and, you know, a lot of people will be picking it for ideas, too. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, let us know. When you get ready to publish, we'd be happy to review it. Okay, I certainly that'd be, will. Oh, that'd be, that'd be great. And we can pick up Carcosa and Isle of the Unknown at Jim Raggi's site. Right? Yes, and that's right. You can also get them on various um, places on the internet. There's like uh, Troll and Toad has them. Noble Knight Games has them. Okay. So you don't. Have, if you live in the United States, you don't have to pay the shipping. You know, from Finland, you, you can you can get them. Uh, you know, with, with you know, relatively low shipping here, and you know, and he, they're in distribution as well. They're uh, they're at game stores. I, I I couldn't give you a list, but they're at game stores in Europe and the United States for sure. I, I'm, I'm sure. I have yet to see any copies in my game store, but then again, I'm in Oklahoma, so. Right, right. Yeah. So I, I all I know is that, that that they are in distribution in the United States. They went into distribution in late March, I believe. Uh -huh. And so if anybody does want to support his local game store and order it from them, they should be able to order it no problem without having to, you know, contact James Raggi. It should just be right there in their regular catalog. Right. Absolutely right. Well, you know, I feel like you and Jim are like two of the guys who just liked showed the OSR what you can do besides rehashing old stuff. Uh, because since then, like I went to North Texas RPG Con, I was see I looked over at the Frog Gods games uh, table and they had these series called Hex Crawl Classics, where they yes. hex with stuff and you crawl through it or a series of hexes, and it's like wow, that's just like what Jeff was doing. Yes, yes, yeah. That's that's one of my that's one of my hopes is that more and more people will will uh, do the type of stuff that I really would like to buy. You know, I, I'm too lazy to keep writing books, you know. I, I want other people to write them so I can just pay for them. Yep. It's easier to hand out money. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it takes, you know, on each of these books, it probably took me, you know, four months to write. I mean, gee, I'd much rather hand over some money than spend four months of my life writing a book. <laughs> I hear you there. I hear you there. Um, I've tried my hand at it. And not fun. Not fun. You're going to have to no, strip no, me I naked and put me, in a, put me in a room with a computer, and that's it. That's right. That's right. It, this, uh, I mean, I love creating for D&D. I love mm. just sitting down with blank paper and pencil and just doodling out things, you know, uh, maps and little notes and stuff. But, of course, only I could really make heads or tails out of them because it's not, it's not anything for other people to understand. And so to turn those notes into a publishable book, is that's, that's rough. There's this one guy on Dragon's Foot. And he gently ribs me and says, well, well, why don't you give this stuff away for free? There's, there's plenty of really high-quality <laughs> stuff you know, out there in the old-school renaissance that they give away for free. So yeah, that, that, that's kind of his philosophy. Everything should be free. It should just all be free. And I say, well, you know what? There was never a choice between a free you know, Carcosa or Isle and a choice between a, a, a paid-for one. Mm-hmm. It was always a choice between either a for-profit Carcosa and Isle of the Unknown or none at all because yeah. there is no way I was going to go to all the unpleasant effort and work of putting these things in publishable you know, form oh, no. and then just say, oh, here, it's free. <laughs> now, yeah. now, if anybody ever wants, if anybody, anybody ever wants my notes for free, okay, come to my house and let you have them. It's kind of the PDF mindset of the Internet these days. Just put it in a PDF and give it out for free. It's too much work, you know, and and, and, and especially when I was um, printing Carcosa from my own house. You know, this is pretty insane. I, it would take me probably close to 30 minutes for each copy. And this is after I have the book written. It's done, right? So, so somebody would give me an order. I would go to my printer. I'd print that thing off. I'd have to fold all the pages in half by hand, and I have to make sure that they were folded really well, so it wasn't you know all you know cockeyed or anything. And then I'd have to. The one thing I I couldn't do is I didn't have a stapler that was long enough or strong enough to get through all the pages. So then I'd drive it over to the print shop and pay them to put staples in it. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I also had to to get the. Um, the cardstock. I, I used the brown cardstock, so okay. old D and D books. This is insane. I, I depleted four hobby lobbies of brown cardstock, and they never got any more. <laughs> I'd beg them, just get this brown cardstock. This isn't a weird color, and you carried it anyway. Just get some more. I was driving from Pueblo to Colorado Springs. It's about an hour drive, oh. you know, to get this brown cardstock. Then, I, then I'd have to, you know, buy the mailing uh, packages and. Uh, you know, then get everything, you know, get the books all nice and secure in the mailing packages, then drive to the post office and mail these things. Like, I'm not doing that for free. That's insane. <laughs> so so you're, I always thought of it, you're not really paying for my book or my ideas. You're paying for the, the, the effort I have to right. share the book and the ideas with you. The time and effort, right. Uh, yeah, because... As far as I'm concerned, the ideas are yours. You know, uh, even if you didn't buy the book, I, I would welcome anybody taking the concepts from Carcosa and/or Isle of the Unknown. Write it, write your own stuff for it. Give that away for free, or sell it. I don't care. Um, I'm totally open about that. I'm not going to be all down on anybody for using my books and profiting off it. Good. Right. I hope somebody makes a mint off of Carcosa. Cool. 
Cool. And, okay, I, st- last stupid question. Uh, Carcosa, it's a planet, right? Yes. Okay. I, I, I can't, I can't get the Isle of Carcosa out of my head. No, no. So what it is, Carcosa is a planet in the Hyades cluster. That's, that's a real cluster of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Okay. It's a little over 150 light years away from Earth. Wow. And uh, so it's an alien world. So you can so you can actually run this with some sci-fi stuff if you accidentally land on it or something. Very nice. Certainly. Then, then Isle of the Unknown, um, you know, I only detailed the magical and wondrous aspects of the island. So you could literally fill in the mundane stuff with anything you wanted. It could be pre-Columbian Aztec. It could be medieval France. It could be Australia. It could be Atlantis. It could be anything you want. Mm -hmm. In my own home campaign, it was set on a a fantasy version of the real Earth. It was an island in the Mediterranean. Uh, Basically, it was was the fantasy version of Corsica. And uh, and so it it was set it was set in the early 1300s, so Isle of the Unknown in my campaign was set in a mythical version of Earth's medieval past. Right. But, but that's just me. It would work equally well for, for any, any campaign at, set in any time. Cool. Okay, I got one last question. Sure. You got to come to North Texas RPG Con? You know... Possibly, maybe? <laughs> I don't think so. I, I, oh, I don't do that. Yeah, my, my life is such, you know, I'm, okay. I'm, a, I'm a real estate agent, and, and I'm kind of like a fireman. My job is kind of like a fireman. Okay. Most of the time, I have nothing to do. But suddenly, I have a $5,000 commission writing on me, <laughs> making, sure, making sure that my client signs something and faxes it back in the next 24 hours. Okay. So, so, so that's why I can't really, you know, leave home too much because I can lose... You know, hugely on just oh gotcha. I missed it you know yeah gotcha you're a better man than I gunged it in <laughs> gotcha well you know it's it's a year away I just thought I'd ask anyway it'd be great if we could like get some players and have you go go through Carcosa with them or something oh I would love it but I'm afraid it's just not possible okay well change your mind let us know oh I will yeah <laughs> Jeffrey thank you for talking to us I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me on. Oh, sure. And uh, that's about it, folks, this week. Um, Save or die, can you make the save? All that stuff they say. Good night, everybody. Good night.